0: I think I should just kind of research white paint, molasses, mayonnaise, white bread. Cause I feel like those things are gonna be more interesting to research than measurements. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so you you didn't have a blast researching
0: i came out the other end
1: and i survived but
0: um i i think i like started researching four or five times and then i just had to stop because i was so bored but that's not to say that what i have to say is boring i found the good stuff the juicy bits so, look forward to some hot measurement action, because it's it's enthralling. This is uh, Reconceived with Ben and Joel. I am Joel. And I'm Ben. And I am tired. Yes. So, it's going to be a, a, a more... Intimate, quiet episode for me, very, Ben. What kind of energy are you bringing quiet, today?
1: A very quiet episode. This is ASMR, Ben. Episode. I'm. I was whispering. There is some. I figure that oh, okay. ASMR stuff is probably that's in vogue right now.
0: Uh, uh, yes, I. Uh, yeah.
1: What did you ask um, me just, just a couple seconds ago? Ah, uh, what kind of energy are you bringing in today? I am bringing in, uh, like, probably Red Ninja energy. <laughs> what, what does that mean, Ben? I don't know. it okay. Did you ever watch the Lego Ninjago series? No, I didn't. The red one, his name was Kai. And he had, like, his own energy source that he could, like, make fire with.
0: And like, mm-hmm. turn
1: into tornadoes and fly and stuff. I'm so.
0: glad to hear it. Um, shall we start discussing things and what we found out?
1: Speaking of fire, you know what you have to do with pottery?
0: Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, let's go with you. What? What's up? You killing it. So, pottery is... You're, hey, you're, never mind. What's up? I was going to say that you're killing it, but that was a stupid joke. Go on. So,
1: the... <laughs> that was some cold silence from you. I had to... Tell me about pottery. I did assess our friendship. Uh, pottery. <laughs> I, I went into this thinking for some reason. Um, so one of my assumptions, it seems, was correct, and the other one was very not correct. Was the one that was very not
0: correct the one that I had the opposite opinion of, ergo making me it, correct?
1: No. I'm sorry. It was not. Dang it. All right. Go on. What well, was interesting about the research was that I kind of assumed I knew in my head oh yeah of course pottery's changed over the years Mm. like since the Egyptians did it there have probably been some improvements yes but what I didn't reckon for was what sorts of improvements there had been because I think very narrowly sometimes Mm. I think okay so what sorts of tools like hand carving tools would you use in order to sculpt clay into what you wanted to make it become. Hmm. That's what I thought the change would have been, that we've just gotten better at that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. To make the whole process more efficient? Correct. And so I thought that, I mean, obviously there's not that much change that can happen, but maybe we've gotten cleverer with how we use certain things or use certain tools. That's not at all the case. Very little of that has occurred. Instead, what's changed is the technique around the actual modeling and molding with clay. The molding of clay has changed, but what's changed more than that is the process of firing it, which I hadn't considered. So tell me about that. So at first, um, like the very earliest pottery was probably done over fires. And the reason we think they weren't done in ovens or anything like that was because ovens are semi-permanent So if you found a whole bunch of pottery in one place and you kept excavating, you'd expect to find, you know, some sort of brick oven that would say, "Okay, that's where the pottery was fired. But that's not not what we find in the oldest pottery. So we're pretty sure
0: they, they would basically just like
1: cook vases like marshmallows. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And the reason that was so helpful and the reason that was so valuable is that was one of the first ways that someone would be able to make food in bowls. Mm. That was basically the only way to do it. You didn't have any stainless steel bowls. You didn't have any cookie sheets. None of that existed. No, you know, measuring <laughs> cups and what have you.
0: Cavemen with cast iron.
1: Yeah, that's that's not really the image that I think most people have in mind when it comes to cavemen. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first exciting thing that happened in pottery is that it existed. <laughs> they fired it. They, they roasted it like marshmallows over a fire and then they used it to bake other things in the pottery. Yeah. You keep going on. And then in like 3000 BC, Mm. they have what's called the slow wheel, which is where you can turn this giant wheel and have pottery that's more or less symmetrical, but it doesn't turn very fast. It's not like the pottery wheels you think of today. Mm. It was kind of like a Lazy Susan type thing. (laughs) And then later, I wasn't really able to find out exactly when, was the fast wheel. Ooh, That was when you were able to mass produce pottery where Mm. the wheel turns fast enough so that you can use basically the same techniques on the same amount of clay in order to maintain consistency. So
0: up until this point was like, was it like a printing press situation where like pottery had been super expensive and like a very privileged thing. And then once it was like able to be mass produced using that, uh, the fast wheel, Then it became more common or was it just like,
1: you know, everyone made their own pottery? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. There is remarkably little documentation about what potters did or who did pottery. Hmm. There's a, a good indication in Japan that in the early days of pottery, Anyone who was a potter also did other things. There weren't master potters. So in reality, what probably happened was everyone was kind of okay at pottery, and all of a sudden, with the invention of the fast wheel, some people got really good at it and they could make a lot of pottery faster. So there Mm -hmm. was sort of a division of labor thing that happened with that. But Most of that historical reconstruction is just guesswork because you're not going to have ancient Mesopotamians writing down. And suddenly Joe didn't have to do pottery anymore because Frank did all of it for the town. Yeah, I mean like I feel like
0: pottery is one of the
1: most basic elements of human
0: society and at the very least much less complicated and more frequent than writing. And so it's just like, if you have pottery, if you if you don't have pottery, you probably don't have any way to document the fact that you did not have
1: pottery. You know what? That's probably true. The next big breakthrough wasn't related to the wheel, but it came in about, um, 600 AD. And that was mm-hmm. in China in the Han dynasty when potters found new firing techniques that allowed them to reach very, very high temperatures, like yeah. 2000 degrees Fahrenheit and higher. Yeah. Um, And at that point, like the actual clay, it basically, it becomes glass. Mm. And when it hardens, it's a different material than what it started out as. You have a sort of thin, translucent, white ceramic porcelain.
0: Oh. Now,
1: not all kinds of clay can actually get to temperatures that high. Mm. They have to be very free of impurities and they have to be a certain consistent quality. Sure. But China was able to perfect that. And so... That's why China is called that mm. in the States and later in, you know, much later, not 600 AD, you know, the United States hasn't been around that long. I'm not sure right. if you knew that. I learned that. That's crazy. You know, had, had you ever heard of 1776? I, I heard the movie wasn't very good. No. <laughs> um, Other places tried to copy that same porcelain look by just using glazes by mm. a lot of times they would use lead. They would take little bits of ground up lead and they would put it on normal clay and it would turn the outside into a sheen of white there's something else about pottery that i thought was very interesting which was the introduction of kilns Hmm. the the idea of a kiln is that you're able to concentrate heat in such a way that it stays in the same place and it doesn't leave the walls. And the more you put fire into it, the hotter it actually gets. It doesn't lose its energy the same way an oven would. Mm. And so kilns are what enables people to do the firing process. And then the other difference that I've learned is that recently, the in you know the 20th century, like, that yeah. recently, the changes that have been happening have been in technology of the kilns. So originally they were all just wood. If you had a kiln, you fired it with wood. Okay. But after that, gas kilns were invented, and that was in the 20th century. Problem with gas is that it's actually not as consistent as you would think. That it's it's still a little bit finicky.
0: Wait, and so gas gas fires would be more consist uh,
1: would be less consistent than wood. No, they're more consistent than wood, but they're not as consistent as you would want. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It works, and there are still people who have gas kilns, but they're not as consistent as electric kilns. Those were the most recent invention that enable you to have very precise temperatures. They have automatic shutoffs at certain temperatures. Some glazes need variable temperatures where sometimes it needs to be, you know— 800 degrees and sometimes it needs to be 1200 degrees and then it needs to go back to a thousand degrees. Well, electric kilns will be able to do that with more precision than gas kilns will be able to do. And what that enables us to do is it enables people to come up with more creative glazes, which is like the final coat of, you can think of it as paint that goes on the outside of pottery. That's the best part that makes it shiny and safe to eat food off of. So
0: from what I gather, Pottery, even though it's been around for for pretty much all of mankind's history, it hasn't really changed much. The same idea of how to make pottery, of exposing clays to excessive heat, that has been that has been consistent throughout all of time. And as um, technology innovations have been made. They haven't been reinventive, unlike the, the horse-drawn carriages or the, the, the straw huts. Pottery has been able to thrive in all societies. And as technology advances, instead of it being replaced by something better, it is simply def, uh, refined and made um, more controllable is that basically the
1: yes that that is a good synopsis the, the only thing that's really changed are the trappings of pottery mm. the the edges have become a little bit smoother but the what's at the core hasn't changed
0: that's fascinating because like I, I think it's interesting because so many different elements of human necessity has been totally redefined especially in the past i don't know 200 years where it's just like you know, like like I was saying, transportation has changed entirely. Uh, Housing has changed entirely. How we, I mean, even now with like food and meat and the idea that you have to kill animals for meat, that is currently being challenged. And so many elements of human necessity and human tools have been totally redefined to a point where they aren't even recognizable anymore. But pottery... Pottery is such a, such a fundamental, a, a fundamental part of how we work and how we operate. That you can use a piece of pottery that was made yesterday just as well as a piece of pottery that was
1: made three thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. That's a, that's an astounding thought. That is not lost on potters. And I was as I was reading doing the research, I would see oftentimes, you know, there was one article in particular that I remember hmm. the potter being interviewed was commenting that, you know, when you're making a bowl or you're making a vase or whatever it is that you're making out of pottery, you know, oftentimes it's not lost on you that wherever this goes this could be the longest lasting thing in any building. Mm. That if civilization were to crumble, my artwork or my craftsmanship would be preserved. Mm. And you would – it's its certainly very easy or it could be very easy to say, oh, I, I'm, how what a great legacy I will have. But it's hard to do that when there's this rich history and tradition of civilization doing this for millennia. Mm. You're just – another voice in the myriad of voices speaking the same language of helping humans to consume foods and store things in in, in practical and beautiful ways hmm.
0: pottery is in such a unique camp because it has those elements of art that are that that you you can't replace it but it has the practicality of everyday items and i i, I I I can't honestly think of any tool or any art piece that is as long-lasting and as uh, necessary, practical, as pottery. I think that's my big takeaway from this. So Ben, so Joel, uh, welcome, welcome to my measurement corner. Well, Everything has been measured out precisely. You will see over to your left. You have a glass of water that is uh, exactly thirteen centimeters away from that
1: tissue box. Do you see that? I, I now see it now that you now that you point out the ruler standing right there, so I can measure it with my own two yes, eyes. Yes.
0: Yes, but here's the wild thing. That tissue box is 13 inches away from the next glass. Okay, that's a bold, and, bold change in pace there. I know, and do you know what's even crazier? I don't. None of that matters. All right, so let's talk about measurements. <laughs> let's talk about measurements. Yeah, I, I, I say that because measurements um, throughout history has been a very, very local matter. Um, so different towns and different, um, groups of people would have pretty much their own way of measuring thing, uh, of being able to communicate. Mm. And this makes sense. If you are only interacting with a specific group of people, you know, you, you would just kind of develop measurements that would make the most sense to you guys. Right. Um, and, and because of that. Uh, many measurements throughout the world have been based off of human body parts. This is called morphology. Um, Hmm. And so that's why we have digits, which would be the digit of a finger. Um, Things are measured in feet and hands and thumb length and even a fathom, which I found out is essentially just a person's wingspan.
1: It's how long their arms are outstretched. Wait, so a, f- a fathom is a wingspan. I thought a f- that's, that, I, that sounds like such a nautical term, and that, that's a weird way to think about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, for, for a lot of human history. Um, and you also have like cubits, which is the length of someone's arm, you know? Um, and depending on which town and even what occupation you were in, you'd have very different measurements even even if it has the same names say the your pottery friend is um you know a little bit uh smaller than your your woodworking friend and so his cubit sized pots are smaller than the other guy's cubit sized wooden statues hmm so it it was it was very much just morphology you used what you had in order to do measurements. And when you were the only voice in your occupation in your town that mattered, then that worked out well. And you would say, yeah, this is my cubit length pottery. Um, So that started to change and and, uh, units of measurement started to become less uh, subjective with with, with England. Because they were one of the first to give any form of widespread standard in their units. Uh, The very first time that they did this was with King Henry VIII introducing the Winchester units of 1495 and Queen Elizabeth I introducing her own in 1588. And basically, they just compiled the units that people had been using. So, you know, feet, digits. Um, Fathoms, And they gave a specific measurement that was sanctioned by the crown.
1: So I'm going to – I have a question here at this point as you're explaining to me that everything was still in flux and there wasn't like a – this is officially how big this is and everyone knows. Yes. So were there not official – like in in Babylon or – in israel was there not like an official statue somewhere that said this is the official cubit length and everyone was just kind of like "Ah, cubits about this long as far as i can tell
0: no well like and also i I think an important thing is like occupation so like say uh, from what i gather basically like say you have um, the, the, the measurements of the pyramids because the pyramids were obviously like very, very um, uniform to an unbelievable degree. Um, hmm. That said, they probably used the exact same uh, measurements for everything. But like Egypt as a whole had not defined qubit for everything. It was dealing with local occupations.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. As far as I could tell, the first time that there was any kind of like national uniformity was with king henry the eight, uh uh the 7th i think i said 8th earlier but it was king henry the 7th but even after he was just like yes this is how things are people still um deviated because it wasn't enforced they just used what they had again using their own body um it wasn't until the weights and measures act of 1824 where the English countries started to take these measurements as definitive, where a foot was exactly this length. Uh, This was the legislation that established the imperial system as the standard in England, which was a little bit different to Queen Elizabeth's standards. The U.S., in response, established what they were used to using and set that as their standard that would be enforced giving birth to what we now know as the U.S. customary units, which are more like the uh, Queen Elizabeth's standards than they are uh, the imperial system. So same measurement names, just a little bit different.
1: Hmm. So still feet and inches and stuff, but not quite the same lengths. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it essentially went from local communities having different measurements to national countries. That's really weird, and they're all they're all still using primarily morphology, but they want to codify it a little bit exactly that all said though things could have been quite different because the u s almost became one of the earliest adopters of the metric system right then and there in eighteen twenty four hmm it was had already been developing for quite some time at this point, so around the same time that Uh, England was trying to normalize its measurements. France was trying to do the same, except they wanted to totally create a new system. Um, And, you know, since they're saying, hey, since we're making a definitive claim on measurements, let's use a measurement system that is as efficient and as science-friendly as possible. Um, It started with Gabriel Moton, who many consider as the father of the metric system. He first proposed a decimal system of measurement where everything is split up into tens. And once you reach a 10, you use a bigger form of that measurement. Hmm. When was this? What was his name again? That um that was around 1670. And his name was Gabriel Moton. M-O-U-T-O-N. So he's the guy who was like, yo, tens are pretty cool. We should have those. Yeah. Hmm. Over in Eastern cultures, they've been using decimals and they've been doing crazy stuff with math. Let's like see if we can't do the same with our measurements. Um, So... French spent the next 120 years perfecting the system until in 1790, the National Assembly of France established the meter as their invariable standard, which was not based on the relative length of a person's body, but rather a fraction of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. Mm -hmm. Its adaptability to scientific and engineering efforts has made the meter and the rest of the metric system flourish, and it quickly became commonplace across the globe. So now we reach the question then, why hasn't it
1: reached the U.S.? Right, because I was, as you were talking about the British Empire saying, we have officially said that this is what a foot means, and this is how you should use it. I was thinking, no, that makes sense, because as an empire grows larger... And let's say you have a British captain who lives a lot of his life in India. You don't want him sending a letter back to the king saying, I have 300 pounds of fine spices and then coming back with 250 pounds just because they think pounds mean different things. So as everything sprawls out, you have to get less local and you have to make things very straightforward. And then as the world gets bigger, everyone keeps saying, wait, hang on. We all want to be a foot. We all want to be a pound. But mm-hmm. they mean different things by it. So we they eventually slowly and slowly get to the point where let's have everything be in tens because that's easy for humans. And let's have it not be based on body parts. So there's like an objective standard for it. Yeah. And so I, it's very strange that what we think of as the world superpower hasn't ascribed to that same uniform system. So what were we able to find about that?
0: Yeah, that has bothered me for years. And I, I, I've started to get an understanding of historically why and logistically why. So right after the metric system was established in 1790, Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson endorsed transitioning the uh the new American country to the metric system, or at least mm. some system with using decimals.
1: Good old Thomas Jefferson.
0: Yeah. There was just enough hesitation to stop him, though, as he feared the U.S. wouldn't be able to verify the proper lengths of the metric system without sending costly delegations to the France. In the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, France's relationship with the U.S. had quickly deteriorated, so much so that in
1: 1790... Uh, Why? No, I said right. Yeah, like that... Oh, okay. After they were yeah. like, yeah, we're going to help you out. And we were like, mm, maybe not so much. I can see why they yeah. were not super jazzed about helping us out. Exactly. It, it was actually, they were very
0: so unjazzed about it that in 1798, France invited uh dignitaries from a bunch of different countries to Paris to learn about the metric system. But they intentionally did not invite the U.S. Mm. So here's things that I didn't know. In 1866, the use of the metric system in legal circumstances was made lawful. You no longer just had to use the U.S. forms of measurements. You could actually sell things by the metric system and um, do legal business
1: by the metric system. So if you wanted to, you would be allowed to like sell the government... No, 300 meters of bulletproof vest material. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And in 1893,
0: the Meddenhall Order established the metric system as the fundamental standard for U.S. measurements. Huh. So, legally speaking, the U.S. has recognized and based our standards on the metric system for the past 120 years.
1: Hmm. So, th- that's like It's like the operating system, but the, yes. the user interface is still inches and feet. Mm-hmm. But if we have the metric
0: system and it's already in our legal um, facilities and the U.S. isn't hostile to it and it's literally the basis of our measurements anyways, where's the metric system and why aren't we using it? Well, in the 1970s, there were huge pushes to try and convert America over to the metric system within a 10-year span. So by the distant future of 1980, we may be able to be all metric. Um, this obviously did not work, um, and the, the plan kept on becoming less and less uh, time-restricted and more lenient as the program went on, until the cry for the metric system slowly dissipated almost entirely. Um, So, even though this push wasn't fully successful, there were still some efforts from all of this that actually ended up um, being important. For instance, in 1988, Congress passed amendments to the Metric Conversion Act, stating the metric system was... Quote, the preferred system of weights and measures for U.S. trade and commerce. This is why pharmaceutical has gone completely um, metric. It only displays metric on pharmaceutical stuff and beverages. They show you ounces and liters. Hmm. But e- even though there is the, those pushes of hard metric conversions and soft metric conversions, um, that's where it died out. And there's a couple of reasons why, um, further advances hasn't happened. One is that people are used to the U S measurements and would likely make a big stink about it. People don't like change. A more economic reason why we don't have the metric system is that it's Estimated cost to convert all of our stuff from the U.S. to metric is insane. A report from 1995 estimated the cost of converting just road signs would be up to $420 million, which is over $710 million in today's money. And that's just road signs. Good grief.
1: That That's a hard sell to say. Hey, everyone who knows yeah. inches and feet. Not only are you going to have to learn a different system, but your mm-hmm. taxpayer dollars are going to have to pay for everything to be changed over. Right. And I mean,
0: like, and that kind of ties into the biggest reason why a conversion isn't likely at this point. I mean, just remember the standards of ye olden days. If it's not forced on people, if there's no good reason why they have to change, and if people are able to thrive with the measurements that they know people are going to stick with what they're used to because it works for them we are mm. able to exist in a world that has both metric and us measurements and so if it's not enforced then why would anyone bother mm.
1: that is an interesting parallel that i hadn't thought of that you know before measurements were just whatever you needed them to be and they were largely dependent on the individual town Whereas today, that's that's still that same – that fundamental calculation hasn't changed. Measurements should serve people, not the other way around. But it means that most countries have to be metric because that's the way that's most seamless to integrate into the international society. Whereas the United States, because of strange history and because of just how things turned out – the United States has always been on the you know, feet and in inches standard. And mm. we're able to survive just fine like that. So it's the, it's the same calculation. Nothing has changed. Because the situation is different for us, we come to a different result. That's interesting.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> this has been Reconceived. I hope you've learned with us. And I hope we skipped that
0: whole discussion about Caitlyn. <laughs> well, this is your episode, not per- so you- not a specific, not a specific person. Oh gosh, wait, that made it sound like we were like gossiping about someone named
1: Caitlin. We not like that. everyone. We we're just talking about the name you, Caitlin. Caitlin.
0: Yeah. No, we like Caitlyn. She's sweet. But not that Caitlin. To all the Caitlins out there, I appreciate you. To all the Caitlyn's out there,
1: you know who you are. You know what you've done.
0: Yeah, because their name's Caitlyn, and they they got named Caitlyn.
1: Okay, well, shut up, Joel. I'm trying to be dramatic. Oh, I'm sorry.